Y'all turn with me to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40. We're going to continue our series, Where is God? We're looking at the life of a man named Joseph. Very eventful life of this guy. And I want to start today uh, by reading some statements. And they all have one thing in common. They're very different statements, all a little bit goofy, but uh, they all have something in common. I'm going to get to what they have in common at the end. So here we go. Number one, the definition of mixed feelings is watching your mother-in-law drive off a cliff in your Cadillac. (laughs) The last thing I want to do is hurt you, but it's still on the list. Light travels faster than sound. That's why some people appear bright until you hear them speak. I would agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Some people are like slinkies. They're not really good for anything, but it sure is fun to push them down the stairs. Come on. I mean, (laughs) don't act like you haven't thought that. You don't need a parachute to skydive. You only need a parachute to skydive more than once. And my personal favorite, I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming in terror like the passengers in his car. (laughs) Now, what all those statements have in common, if you listen, the way they end changes the whole statement. You think it's going one way, it goes another. The end causes you to reinterpret the first part. There are examples of a figure of speech that's called, grammarians call a paraprosdokian. It's a figure of speech in which the second part of a sentence is surprising in a way that causes the listener to reframe or reinterpret the first part. The example they give in the dictionary is Groucho Marx's statement, I've had a perfectly wonderful evening, but this wasn't it. So... What makes those statements memorable, funny, interesting is there's a twist at the end. There's an interesting, there's an unexpected moment. And that's true of any good story, any good movie, any good joke, right? If you can, if you can predict the, the punchline of a joke, if you can predict the end of a movie before it gets there, it's no good. And ironically, we're the exact opposite with real life. We want our movies, our jokes, our stories to be unexpected. We want life to be predictable. We want life to be something we can count on. And and isn't it true that sometimes God does things we don't understand? Things happen in life. We pray for one thing and we get another. Or we pray for something diligently over time and our neighbor gets it. We experience hardship that we don't understand where it came from. We don't really understand what God's up to. And sometimes, if we're honest, we wonder if he's forgotten about us. Maybe he's moved on. He he certainly seems to be paying attention to that person over there, but he's not paying attention to me. And if you've never felt that way, you probably will. And in a room this size... You'd probably be surprised how many people would stand up if everyone was totally honest, gave them truth serum, and say, yeah, right now I just feel like God is paying attention to other people, other things, but he's not paying attention to me. I feel forgotten. I feel abandoned. What, What does God say when we feel that way? And by the way, by the way, those aren't always people you can pick out of a crowd I've been in the ministry long enough that I've learned that some people are very public with their grief and their hardship and they just feel very transparent and they feel free to share what's going wrong in their life. But others, they keep it all inside. 
And so there may be a person in this room that you know well and you think of them as very, very socially adept and outgoing, but if you got to know them better, you'd find out they feel like they don't have a single friend in this whole wide world. And there may be a person who you look at and say, boy, I wish I looked like her, or I wish I, wish I was married to someone as, as nice as his wife, or I wish that I had as much money as she does, or I wish I had a job as good as he does. And when you get to talking to them, you find out they can barely get out of bed in the morning. They're struggling. You just can't pick these people out of a lineup, necessarily. So what does God say about that? What do we, what do we know about God? I said at the beginning of this series, what you believe about God, your theology, is the most important thing about you. It's going to dictate how you live. And what you believe about God is important, especially in moments like this. Joseph, the man in our story, was raised in a God-fearing home. What he believed about God was crucial to his survival. Because when we last left Joseph, he was stuck in prison all by himself. You remember Joseph's story, right? He was born the the 11th son of a great man, Jacob. Very dysfunctional family, but he was daddy's favorite. He grew up with, with, uh, you know, the the coat of many colors. He was was the chosen one, and he was going to be great. And the defining moment of his life was the day that his brothers grabbed him and threw him into a cistern, a, a, a dry well, He was stuck in a hole all by himself. Up until that moment, Joseph didn't know they had anything against him. And now he's abandoned by those who loved him most. And they brought him up to the surface again just to sell him into slavery. And he said goodbye to his family forever. He was carried away to Egypt where he became the servant of a man named Potiphar. Last week we saw how even though he didn't do anything wrong, he was thrown into prison by the same man, Potiphar. And so Joseph went from the chosen one at 17 years old, I'm going to be great, God has already told me I'm going to do incredible things, to now he's at the very bottom, stuck in a dungeon for a crime he did not commit. And so let's see what happens next. The the. The Lord brought something into his life he didn't expect. Two prominent men were put into his cell with him or into that prison alongside of him. One of them was the king's cupbearer, the man who tasted the king's food for him, basically his butler. And the other was the king's baker. These two men are imprisoned for some offense against the king. And on one particular night, both men have very vivid dreams. Vivid and disturbing dreams. Disturbing enough, they go talking to others saying, hey, I, this has to mean something. Can you tell me what it means? Now, that had to remind Joseph of the dreams he had when he was a boy, when God gave him dreams, that someday people, his loved ones, would bow down before him. And it had to make him sad, but at the same time, it had to make him think, hey, maybe God has given me the ability to interpret others' dreams. And so he says, tell me what you dreamed, and I'll see what, what happens. I'll see what God tells me. So let's look at the first interpretation, verse 12 of chapter 40. This is the cupbearer's dream, and we're not going to look at the details of the dream, but here's what Joseph says, because it's very important. This is what it means, Joseph said to him, the three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Now look at that last word of the sentence, dungeon. Joseph's word that he actually uses in Hebrew here is not a word that means dungeon. It literally means hole. He says, I've done nothing to be put into this hole. 
And it tells you a lot about Joseph's state of mind at this point. First of all, he remembers being thrown into a hole by his brothers. In some sense, he's never really gotten out. From the day at 17 when his brothers grabbed him and threw him into that hole, he's never really, his life hasn't improved. It's only gotten worse. He's only gone deeper and deeper and deeper into despair, further and further away from where he wanted life to be. It's been 13 years. Joseph's about 30 now. So that's a long time to feel like God has ignored him. He feels like he's stuck in a hole, filled with darkness, abandoned all by himself. And he says to this guy, listen, I'm doing you a solid, now you do me one. Go and tell Pharaoh that I'm an innocent man, and maybe if he's got any justice in him, he'll let me free. Now look at the the baker's interpretation. Verse 18, he, he talks to the baker and he says, this is what your dream means. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, guys, this is not a lesson in how to share bad news with someone gently, because, you know, Joseph did not exactly spare any details here. I, I personally wouldn't have wanted to know what happened to my flesh after I died, but Joseph told him anyway. What this, this shows us is that God has given Joseph this ability, and sure enough, it went just the way he said. Three days passed on the third day, the baker was executed and the cupbearer was released and got his old job back. But guess what happens next? Verse 23, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph, he forgot him. And then it says in in chapter 41, verse 1, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. So picture Joseph and and the three days pass and the chief cupbearer is released and and Joseph's like, thank you, God. Just like you said, he's been released and he he waits. He thinks, surely the first thing that guy's going to do is he's going to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, you've got to release my friend Joseph. A day passes. Then another day, then another day. And Joseph's thinking, okay, he, he had to attend to some business and, and maybe the wheels of justice move slowly. So maybe Pharaoh's checking into my case. A week turns into a month and a month turns into a year and nothing. Two full years pass. I wonder at what point in that story, Joseph finally said, it's not happening. I, I thought this was where God was gonna show up. But it turns out the light at the end of the tunnel was just an oncoming train. It, it's no good. I, I've got no hope here. I don't know what I did to God, but somehow he's, he's turned away from me. Meanwhile, what is God doing? Let's take a break in Joseph's story for just a moment and talk about God for a moment. Because there's this, there's this scripture in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. If, you, if it's your own Bible, go ahead and underline it if it belongs to us or to somebody else. Eh, underline it anyway. Um, and, and if you don't have your Bible, write, it, write this reference down on a slip of paper. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. Because I'm telling you, there's going to come a day when you're going to need this scripture. It's one of my favorite little known scriptures in the Bible, Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. While you're turning there, let me give you some context. There came a day when the people of God had had sinned against God so many times, God said, that's it. I'm gonna let the unthinkable happen. The nation of Babylon invaded and destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground, crushed the walls of the city and carried the people of Israel off into captivity for 70 years. 
And God knew, God knew at that point when the people of God saw their temple burned, when they saw the walls of the city broken down, when they, when they found themselves in a distant land where everybody worshiped strange gods and spoke an unusual language, they would think, that's it, God has given up on us. God has forgotten about us for sure. We have no hope. And so before any of that happened, 150 years ahead of time, God spoke to Isaiah and said, write these things down because my people at that point, they're gonna need this because God is good. And here's what he says in Isaiah 49, 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. And, and real quickly, that, that scripture tells us two things. If you ever feel forgotten, two things that you need to know about that. Number one, God is more aware of our problems than we can imagine. God is saying to us when you feel forgotten, you think that I'm not paying attention, but I am more aware of what's going on in your life than you are. First of all, think about that image. He, he says of, of, the, uh, of God saying, I've engraved you in the palms of my hands. That word engraved, it's literally cut or carved. God, God carved the Ten Commandments into a stone tablet, and he's carved our name into the palms of his hands. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always cutting myself somehow, whether it's a paper cut or whether, you know, I'm in the kitchen trying to cut some vegetables and I cut my finger or I'm doing some lawn work or, or like last week, I looked down and my knuckles bleeding. I don't know what happened. I, I don't know. I'm just clumsy that way. I'm really, really hoping that as I get older, um, that's going to get better. I'm going to get less clumsy. Is that right? No, don't tell me differently. I'll, I'll find out. But, but when I cut my hand like that, it doesn't necessarily hurt, it's just it preoccupies my thoughts and all day long I'm looking at it and like, yeah, it's still there. And Every time I grab something and it comes into contact with that wound, I'm reminded of it. Now imagine that you had someone's name carved into your hand. You would, you would hope his name was Joe and not Melchizedek, right? I mean, it would, but either way, either way, think about the pain that would cause and think about how often you would think about that wound and how every time you grab something, because every time you grab something, you're using your palm, you would remember it. And once it healed, once it healed, which it would take a long time to heal, it would leave a permanent scar. It would be like a tattoo across your hand. And, and God is saying, I have, I have tattooed your hand, your, your, your name across the palm of my hand. I, I can't possibly forget you. And we know from the scriptures that God doesn't have a physical hand. God is spirit. He's not flesh and blood. And so this is just figurative. But what he's saying is, I, I haven't just put, a, put your name on a post-it note on my refrigerator. I haven't just tied a, a string around my finger. I've carved you into my hand. I couldn't forget you if I wanted to. And then he says, your walls are ever before me. Your walls are constantly on my mind. Now, we don't get this because we don't live in walled cities anymore, but to the Jews, the walls of Jerusalem were, were huge. Think about how you felt when you saw on 9-11 those planes fly into the World Trade Center. You saw a symbol of our own uh, national prosperity crumble. Now, magnify that by a thousand, and you've got how the Jews felt when they saw the walls of Jerusalem crumble. 
Because the average Jew would, would go to Jerusalem once or twice a year for Passover or for one of the other religious festivals. And on his way there, as he's walking through Judea, which is really a desolate part of, of, the, of the nation, he would look up and he would see in the distance the mighty walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a city set on a high place. It's up on a hill. And so you'd see it for miles to come. And, and the temple peeking up over the, the edges of that of those walls, and then you'd finally get there after hours and hours of walking with that in your, in your sight. You would get there and you'd look up at the walls. It was the biggest structure you'd ever seen in your life. The very stones of that temple, individual stones of that wall were bigger than your house. And you'd think, our God is good. Our God loves us. He's given us this city and these walls just represent the fact that out of all the people on earth, he loves us and we're safe in his arms. And then one day you find out that those walls are just rubble. Think about how that made the average Israelite feel. And God is saying to them, you think about those walls and it, and it makes you sad and you weep, but, but I think about those walls constantly. I weep for them day and night. You feel pain, I feel pain for you. I am more aware of your problems than you can possibly imagine. And the second thing this statement says to us, this verse says to us is, I am loving you right now in ways you can't possibly comprehend. God loves us even when we can't feel his love. Think about the first thing Isaiah says in that passage about a nursing mother and how she loves her infant. I think about uh, the love I saw my wife give to my kids when they were little. You know, I, I am blessed with a beautiful wife who loves me more than I deserve, but I know that if I went home today and I said, okay, honey, it's either me or the kids, she would start packing my bags for me. And I'm not going to look at her right now because I don't want to see her nodding her head, you know. So, I mean, and, and all of you mothers can understand this. When, when our kids were born, I was baffled. I didn't know what to do with this red screaming thing. And she somehow knew and loved our children when they were helpless, when they had nothing to give back. She loved them. And I, I learned a lot about love just from watching her love them. And to think that God looks at that image and he says, yes, that's love. And I love you even more than that. I mean, it's possible that a nursing mother may forget her infant. I can't forget you. It's not even possible. And think about the whole image of of the, of the infant and his mother because the infant doesn't really understand all that mom does for him. All he knows is when I cry, she's there. All I know is when my diaper's full, she's there. All I know is when I need her, she's there, but I don't really think about what goes on in between. I don't think about the sleep she's losing. I don't think about uh, the patience she has to exercise with me. And certainly there are times when it seems like she's against me but she's really loving me. Like that day that, that she held me down real, real still while mean old Dr. Hallbauer stuck me with that needle. Well, that was an act of love. It didn't feel like love. But she was loving me right then. And, and on that night when I wanted her and she let me cry myself to sleep, that was an act of love. It felt like abandonment. But, you know, really she loved me enough that she wanted me to learn to go to sleep on my own so she wouldn't have to be my roommate in college someday and go with me on my honeymoon. That day she took me and dropped me off at the church nursery for the first time and I cried and cried because I thought I'd never see her again, but that was an act of love so that I'd know people beyond just my immediate family so that I'd become part of the family of God on my own. There are times God does things to us 
and allows things into our lives that we think a God of love would never allow this. We don't understand what he's doing, but he's loving us right then in ways we can't comprehend. Take Joseph, for instance. Joseph, if he would have had his way, if he would have had his way with God, then God would have set him free right that day. I mean, it, that, that moment when, when he predicted what would happen to the cupbearer, the cupbearer would have gone straight to the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh would have set him free. And, and, and Joseph was thinking, if God loved me, that's, that's what would happen. But if God would have set Joseph free at that point, what would he have done? He would have gone straight home, straight home to his father who thought he was dead, to his brothers who thought they'd never see him again. He would have gone straight home to daddy and said, said uh, do you know what my brothers did? Because he wasn't ready to forgive those guys. And it would have fractured that family forever. And even more than that, even more than that, God knew what Joseph didn't know, which was there was a famine coming, a famine which it, it, without the intervention of God, Joseph and his family would die and thousands of others would starve to death. And God had a plan. God had a plan to save thousands of lives, including the lives of Joseph's family. And Joseph was integral to that plan, but it was essential for Joseph to be in Egypt, not back home for that plan to be carried out. God knew what he was doing. He was loving Joseph and his family in ways he couldn't possibly comprehend. If God would have come down and tried to explain all those things to Joseph, he couldn't have understood that any more than an infant can understand from his mom why she has to let him cry himself to sleep. There are things God does and allows in our lives we can't possibly comprehend, but he's loving us even when it doesn't feel like love. So let's get back to the story. The cupbearer, two years later, watches the king, Pharaoh, stumbling around as he's had a, a series of vivid, disturbing dreams in the night and he's asking all of his advisors, what should I do? And his advisors are like, what do I look like? Freud, I don't know. I don't interpret dreams. I'm, I'm the minister of defense. What are you asking me for? And, and, and the cupbearer suddenly goes, oh yeah. Oh, hey, king, remember back when you were mad at me a couple of years ago for no good reason, of course, because as you later found out, I was innocent. You let me go. But anyway, in the midst of that time when I was in trouble with you and I was in jail, I met this wonderful guy named Joseph, and he can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. Joseph cleaned himself up, shaved his head and his beard in the Egyptian fashion, stood before mighty Pharaoh. And look what happens next. Chapter 41, verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have, a, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Verse 16 is an amazing statement because even though Joseph has had basically 15 years of misery, he hasn't lost his faith in God. At that moment, he says, listen, I'm just, I'm just an instrument in the hands of Almighty God. His faith in God is still strong. And then he gives Pharaoh his interpretation. He says, here's what your dream means. Your dream means that you're going to have seven years of famine. It's going to hit this area of the world, and, and there's going to be no food to eat for seven full years, nothing. The ground's going to produce nothing to eat. But before that, there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of unprecedented abundance and prosperity. Now, here's where Joseph 
shows us something different than what you and I, most of us, would do. See, Joseph is, is this bold, self-confident young man. And we saw that when he was a kid, when he was a teenager, and, and he's going around bragging to his brothers, hey, you're going to bow down to me someday. And his, I mean, some of us are like this, right? Some of you are like this. You, you, you can't keep anything to yourself. If you know the answer, you have to shout it out. If you think you're right, you have to tell people you're right. You always have to win every fight. You always have to speak up. Bold, self-confident people. You want to punch them sometimes, right? And, and, and Joseph's boldness and self-confidence got him into trouble when he was a kid. But now, his boldness and self-confidence come in handy. Because whereas most of us would just interpret the dream for Pharaoh and say, okay, bless you, please, please release me, I can go on my way, Joseph goes on and says, and by the way, king, if I were in your shoes, keep in mind, this is a guy five minutes ago, he was a prisoner. If I were king, I would bank seven years worth of food. I would, I would store as, many, as, as, as much food in as many barns as you can build so that when the famine hits, there will be plenty. And Pharaoh looks at this kid and he says, you know, I need somebody like you working for me. I, don't, I need you not in a prison. I need you by my side making decisions like that. And so instantly he takes Joseph from the hole in the ground to the penthouse. He gives him the king's signet ring, which means that any law Joseph writes in a clay tablet, he just has to press that ring into the soft clay. And when it hardens, it goes throughout the land and Joseph's word becomes law. And he gets a prominent wife and he gets nice clothes and a chariot to run before him. And here's the best part of the story. Eventually, Joseph and his wife have two baby boys, and he named them Ephraim and Manasseh. Let me tell you what those two names mean. The name Manasseh is a Hebrew word that means forget. Joseph is saying, God, you've, you've enabled me to forget all my troubles. I thought I was forgotten by you, but now I've forgotten all my troubles in light of all you've done for me. And the name Ephraim means fruitful. I think he named him that because he's saying, listen, when I had nothing left and I was stuck in that dungeon, you gave me an opportunity to be fruitful in someone's life. A guy needed help. I helped him. I told him encouraging news. And because of that, because I was fruitful in the darkest place, I gained my freedom. Now, that's a great, great story. But I want to leave you with two things, two, two challenges, okay? Number one, Number one, think back on Isaiah 49, on those promises we read. Think about the idea of, of God writing your name on his hand. Now think about this. There came a day when God did have physical hands, when he took on flesh and blood, and he had the hands of a carpenter, the rough, calloused hands of a man of, of, of industry. And he took those hands and, and he worked miracles with them and he fed people with them. And he touched lepers with them. And then on the appointed day, even though he had more power than any man who's ever lived, he allowed weak and stupid men to take him and execute him and took those hands, those hands that had your name written across them, and they, they put nails through them. Just like an X marks the spot right through that place where your name was written. Because God knew, because Jesus knew that we were sunk in a hole that we couldn't get out of. And rather than ignore us, he got down in the hole with us and gave his life for us. And so those nails went through those hands and he bled and he died so that we could be free. 
And so my first challenge to you is, in just a moment when we pray together, ask the Lord forgiveness and just say, Lord, forgive me for ever thinking that there's something you have to prove to me or that you may have forgotten me. After what you did for me at the cross, you never have to prove your love for me again. So Lord, I want to tell you right now, no matter what happens tomorrow, even if my worst nightmare comes true, I will trust you because you've already proven you love me. The second thing, think about the names of those two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. Think about, think about what God wants to do in your life and ask him, Lord, help me to forget about my pain. I'm so fixated on what's wrong in my life, I can't see the good things that are before me. Help me to forget my pain and be fruitful right where I am. Because I promise you, even if you're in the darkest hole any of us know of, there's an opportunity, even down there, to be fruitful. God has something to teach you. God has some person he wants you to reach out to. Ask God, Lord, help me to forget my problems and instead be fruitful, to see the opportunities before me.